Good evening, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for joining us online and here in person at the Fresno Center. My name is Sherry Cruz, and I'm the Director of Public Relations and Community Relations here at the Fresno Center. The Fresno Center is a nonprofit organization that assists individuals in becoming self-sufficient, self-fulfilled, and more productive members of the community while fostering preservation and promoting cross-cultural understanding. We are honored to partner with Zocalo Public Square to present tonight's program. I'll turn it over to Joe Mathers from Zocalo Public Square. Thank you very much. I'm Joe Matthews. I'm the California columnist and democracy editor at Zocalo Public Square, which is an Arizona State University media enterprise. Um, at Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Um, everything we do is free. Everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. Uh, founded in 2003, it's our 20th year. Uh, you can find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org on podcast platforms and on YouTube. So please subscribe to our latest programs. We're excited tonight to be at the Fresno Center in Fresno, California's fastest growing big city, more people than Oakland or Sacramento, um, to continue our series, What is a Good Job Now? Uh, with the support of the James Irvine Foundation, um, through public programs and essays, this series about workers in the low-wage sectors of California's economy explores how to make the hardest jobs more rewarding and make life better for those who do them. Tonight's program asks, what is a good job now in healthcare? I'm pleased to introduce our moderator for tonight's conversation, Crescencio Rodriguez Delgado. Crescencio is the news director for KVPR, Valley Public Radio. He grew up right here in the San Joaquin Valley and has covered news for the Fresno Bee and PBS NewsHour. Crescencio, over to you. Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome, and thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, so I'm Crescencio Rodriguez Delgado, and I'm the news director of KVPR. Uh, and I'm excited to introduce our panelists today uh, and get right into the conversation. So. Um, we have Janet Dill, who is the Associate Professor in the Health and Policy Management Division in the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota, and the Deputy Director of the Consortium for Workforce Research in Public Health. Her research focuses on job quality and career mobility among the healthcare and public health workforce, and her research has been published in top public health and social science journals and has been supported by state and federal grants. And we also have Helda Pinzon Perez. Uh, she is a professor of public health at Cal State University Fresno. And uh, she has been a professor of public health for more than 20 years. Her areas of research include health matters of vulnerable populations, as well as health issues in rural areas. And last but not least, we have Martha Valladares, uh, who is an in-home supportive services provider. Uh, she has been married for 48 years and has five children. She was one of the first female letter carriers and female shop stewards in Fresno. And uh, she is now retired after 34 years, uh, but her youngest daughter uh, has Down syndrome, which led Marta to uh, join the Health Providers Union, SCIU 2015, for which uh, she is currently the regional vice president. 
So uh, we'll be taking your questions uh, from the audience later uh, in the program. If you're watching online, you can submit uh, your questions in the live chat uh, on YouTube. So with that, um, I think we'll get started. So my first question is for um, Helda. Um, if you can really just give us an overview of healthcare in the San Joaquin Valley, can you explain an overview of how does healthcare look in the Fresno area? Uh, thank you, everyone. My honor to be here sharing with you. I would like to share some information from the Health uh, Workforce Research Data Center, uh, who created an annual report to the legislature. So this is the latest in January 2023. So you can always refer to that uh, report if you need uh, more information. First, um, Crescencio asked me to talk about some of the classifications for the health workforce here. And um, according to the report, uh, the major groups uh, of healthcare workers are in medicine, which include physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, uh, doctors of osteopathy, the area of nursing, registered nurses, licensed vocational nurses, uh, oral health, uh, the dentists, the registered uh, dental assistants, and others, and uh, behavioral health and allied health, which are a cornerstone of providers in the Central Valley. That includes uh, clinical social workers, uh, psychologists, uh, educational psychologists, podiatrists, optometrists, as well as uh, community health workers. Uh, I would like to refer you all to that report, and uh, we can certainly share more on the report. But the key points of the report is that uh, we need um, more uh, healthcare workers, especially entry-level healthcare workers in rural areas, such uh, as we find in the Central California Valley. Uh, there is expected to be, an, uh, according to the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics, an increase of 13% uh, through 2031 in, uh, in healthcare, in the healthcare industry. And when it comes to um, specific, the specificities of the labor force, Mm, uh, we see disparities in terms of uh, the workforce uh, being mal distributed uh, in the Central Joaquin Valley, and this comes from the report. And uh, also, um, a licensure data suggests an increase in exits from the workforce in 2021. Uh, that actually coincides with the decrease uh, in the new licenses uh, issue uh, during that time. Approximately 35% of physicians and uh, are 60 years or more. And also, we see an aging in the workforce force in nurses and um, other uh, health professionals. Um, in general, I have more data, but limited time. So um, I would like to talk about the role of uh, community health workers. Uh, and in community health workers, we talk about promotores, uh, health coaches, um, uh, uh, health educators who have a major role in health promotion and disease prevention, uh, which is one of the major needs um, in our area. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Hella, for that. Um, Janet, I'd like to go to you for the next question. Um, you are visiting us from Minnesota, so it's a, it's a different place. Um, but you, your research has focused on uh, uh, you know, these places in the US that have seen economies transformed uh, by healthcare. And so we will get into the challenges of this area a little later. But can you talk about a, a region and the impact of healthcare uh, in that region when it comes to the economy? 
Yeah, well, I want to thank you for the invitation to be here, and I'm, I'm glad to be uh, visiting from Minnesota. Uh, you know, I, I think that I really started to think about sort of the transformation of um, our economy into really a healthcare-based economy when I was living in the Rust Belt part of our country, which is like Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Detroit area. And a lot of those cities used to be really manufacturing based. You know, if you think about like steel and automobiles, that, that was really the basis of the economy in those cities. Um, I was living and working, um, I was teaching there at a state school, and a lot of my students had parents who would have worked in those industries. Um, but they found themselves not having access to those jobs, right? Because those manufacturing jobs have really gone away. And instead, what really sustains those cities now are large health systems. So if you think about the Cleveland Clinic, right? It's like this mega health system. Uh, and it just is like this gleaming behemoth in, in, in Cleveland. Um, and the same is true in Pittsburgh and, and many other cities. And, um, and so there's been sort of this shift from, um, you know, a, a really um, manufacturing-based economy that really dominated up until the 1970s until today, where now the healthcare sector is the largest employer in the U.S. It employs more people than any other industry. Um, so in many communities, not just in the Rust Belt, but in many communities, the healthcare sector is really the largest employer in town. And we have somebody who's a, who works in health. Um, Martha, we would like to uh, kind of hear from you about how you got involved in healthcare. You said it was the last thing you wanted to do. Um, so can you talk about what got you there? Well, it was. I was a letter carrier, and I never expected <clears throat> that I was going to have a daughter with Down syndrome. I my voice. And, you know, I, I got to admit, I took it really bad. I cried. And then I realized, you know, um, God's not going to give you something you can't handle. But then I found out that there was a union, there was help for uh, kids with disability, and I wanted to learn more. And so one thing about our, the care provider, union we have a very very strong union so i wanted to get involved for the future of my daughter and for all the care providers that you know so i knew that there was a lot that i could do and i could fight for so one thing i wanted to see was time and a half it went up to the supreme court justice robert gave it to us we wanted um sick leave we got three days of sick leave which is really wonderful hopefully i want to see us get a retirement and we're going to work on that next. And we also fought hard to, to get a raise. It took us nine years to get a raise from the county. Why? Because we elect the wrong officers. I can't believe that Riverdale, 95% of them are Hispanics and they're not going out to vote. He voted against us. And he had the nerve to say, I have my mother in the nursing home. And like telling me, why can't you? As a Hispanics, we are going to take care of our loved ones. I said, that's fine. That's a tax deductible. And we're talking about the Board of Supervisors? Yes. In Fresno County? Yes. Those are the ones who give us the worst, the worst ones. And uh, Nathan is another one. And I told them, we're 20,000 strong, so watch out when election comes. You know, we just can't have that. And that's why it took us nine years. We need a raise. We need at least $25 an hour. It's hard work. A lot of us cannot go out of the house and work. 
We can't because we can't, uh, you know, especially we have some kids that cannot walk. Can I speak for themselves? The parents have to fight for them. They're fighting for them all the time. And this is, uh, this is not right. So this is why I got involved. I made sure, like, you know, like to help every people that need help. You know, that uh, that they don't know they know they don't know that they could fight to get more hours like for example for me I was only getting 40 hours and I would go we would go door knocking to the north side of town and every one of them were getting the max hours which is 283 you go to the west side this little man they lived in a one-bedroom home and that was that was the bedroom with the living room and a little kitchen he was only getting 40 hours his son would go around the streets and would get beat up because he had autism and the father had to work. After work, he'd go looking for him and he's beaten up. So he came to our union and says, can you help us? Can you help us? I go, I'll help you. He goes, no, I need a lawyer. I says, I'll help you. I know what you're going through. I'll help you. He goes, no, I, I really need help, but I need a lawyer. I don't have no money. I said, I help you. We appealed. We had to go three times. And the third time, the head of uh, in-home support service wanted to talk to me, and I told her, you know what you do? You tend to profile people by the way they live, by their nationality. That's what you're doing. And you know what? She agreed with me. And you know what? He got the max, 283. And so we're, we're there to help you. And, and we're going to revisit uh. more of your work in a little bit. Um, but uh, that gives us a sense of the challenge that exists uh, when you're a health provider. Um, so my next question um, is for Dr. Helda. Can you talk about the, you, you are involved with students who are going into the health healthcare workforce. And so uh, what should they expect and, um, has, and what has changed in these past few years? Yes. Well, actually I have in the audience lots of my students and it's very nice to see them participating in these events uh, in which they uh, get the information they need to provide better care. In, in the students, um, the students in public health, I also teach in nursing. So in these areas, uh, they uh, definitely are there uh, with a vocation, with a heart that is willing to serve. But at the same time, uh, the reality is that they expect uh, salaries that are competitive. Uh, they also expect uh, possibilities for, for growth, uh, professional growth, personal growth. Uh, they also are looking for jobs in which they can have families, in which they can attend to the demands of other parts of life, not only their uh, professional career goals, but also their personal, uh, spiritual, social goals. Uh, they also are looking for uh, opportunities to apply what they are learning to serve the community. In reality, I think my students, our students are very much there because they want to serve the community and be agents of change, change uh, that is going to contribute to um, growth in our society and and uh, improvement of on this uh, on the uh, vulnerabilities that exist that improve social justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and belongingness. And as we, and we heard a little bit of Martha's story, Jeanette. Um, and uh, some some of your research has focused on healthcare. Uh, a large majority of those who work in healthcare are women. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what does that mean for? Uh, the way that the, the, the way they're compensated and and for the way that these jobs provide mobility yeah well i think you know one thing that um 
I, I probably don't even need to say this, but I, I feel like a lot of, of jobs like home care worker, nursing assistant are really invisible in our healthcare sector um, and not acknowledged, even though they're a huge occupational group. So I, I was recently participating in a webinar in Minnesota and I learned from one of the economists who was on the, the webinar that it's the largest, that the direct care worker occupation in Minnesota is the largest occupational group in Minnesota. Over 8% of workers in Minnesota are employed as a direct care worker, meaning they're a home health aide or they're an, a nursing assistant. And I think the, true, the, the same is probably true in California. So there's a large number of workers who are in these occupations that are in large part very invisible within our healthcare system and they are disproportionately filled by women, sometimes 80 to 90, 95% and disproportionately filled by women of color and uh, immigrant women. When we look at the wages for these jobs, they are lower than wages where there's uh, more representation of men. So we would say that these jobs are devalued, meaning that they're not being paid at the same rate as jobs that are being performed by a mixed gender occupation, meaning both men and women together, or a male-dominated occupation. And, it, and I think it really speaks to the fact that women's labor is really undervalued in our society. It's largely invisible, it's overlooked, and it's not compensated at the same rate that we compensate men's labor. And is, is there a sector of the population uh, who works in healthcare who uh, hold multiple jobs, um, who they don't just have the healthcare job, um, but to make ends meet, they work a separate job? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, as Martha described, a lot of these jobs are not, um, you know, the, the workers might struggle to get full-time hours, they might struggle to uh, get health insurance because they're only working part-time hours. And so what we end up seeing is workers take on many jobs, right? Uh, and they work across many different settings, oftentimes in the home, in nursing homes, um, you know, lots of different healthcare settings in order to try and get enough hours to make ends meet. And so I want to go back to Martha. Um, what training did you get uh, to be your daughter's healthcare provider? No training, no training. But you just take care of her like her. They say... Like your normal child. Well, of course, she's spoiled by everybody. But, you know, treat her like you treat the rest. But it's hard for you to do it because she's, uh, she she's special need. But I'm going to try not to cry. But what I learned, which I was what I never learned, that these kids are treated different. And I ask when I do orientation, like when I take her out, when she's just a baby or such, Kids would just stare at them, and they would laugh at them. The parents are there, and it breaks your heart. Okay, you know, like us Hispanics, when we see a beautiful child, what do we do? Let me hold that child. She's so pretty. I'm going to touch her. Don't we do that? But do we do that to special need kids? We don't. We don't go to the mother and say, can I hold her? She's beautiful. They never did that to me. And this is what you all should do. This is, and we should teach our kids not to do that and, to, and the adult to stop them from laughing at them. And this is what was the hardest thing for me. So please, when you see a child with special needs, go out there and, 
and tell them, like, like my daughters and I, we saw a young lady, she's 21 years old, her daughter was Down syndrome. Once you have a child with Down syndrome, you can tell the child and that. We go up to them and say, oh, she's beautiful. Don't worry, she's going to be fine. She's going to be able to do everything a normal child does. Like when my daughter went in the cabin, got some flour, threw it on the floor. If it would have been my other kid, they would have gotten a spanking. I was so happy that she did it because I said she did something normal. That's it. And those are experiences that not many people get. Um, uh, Dr. Helda, I wanted to ask about the, um, you know, we hear parents having to take care of children with Down syndrome. We also know that there is an aging population that is going to require uh, healthcare workers. And so there's going to be a higher demand. So can you share about those demands and, and what, are the, what are the gaps that we're seeing? Yes. Um, well, uh, first of all, I would like to... Um, express how in preparation to this event we have met and we have had the opportunity to hear the experience of La Señora Marta as well as I am glad to see like in this event we have translation into Spanish interpretation in American Sign Language. All these resources are essential to maintain uh, a healthcare workforce that is effective. Having the uh, investment in these resources is essential. Uh, definitely more more and more occupations, entry-level occupations are needed in healthcare work in the workforce for um, a, the care of uh, a population that is aging, uh, that is living longer as well. Uh, we have populations with multiple diseases, we call it comorbidities, uh, that uh, also with polypharmacy, that means with multiple medications, and more and more of the care is extended to the home inclusive, I just recently read about how the concept of the hospital in itself is disappearing because now it's moving to train the healthcare workforce, to train the home providers uh, with uh, education that will formal education that will prom uh, pr uh, prepare them to provide the care at home, reducing hence the, the uh, possibility of transmissions of disease uh, and uh, leaving the hospital care for very highly complex uh, pop uh, it, it, uh, need, uh, needs and special care. Um, also, um, it's important to recognize the need for uh, the healthcare workforce in rural areas. And um, it, I brought a couple of statistics about that. More than 46 million Americans or 15% of the U.S. population live in rural areas as defined by the U.S. Census Bureau. So uh, the need now is for Elder, mature, grow, a, a wise, a golden age populations, and uh, also in the rural settings. Yeah, and and a question for Jeanette: um, When you work in healthcare, uh, there has to be exposures uh, when you're in in, the, in these different settings. Whether you're at home, yeah. whether you're in the hospital, or whether you're somebody who's a janitor. Um, so, can you talk about that, and and how does that factor into? Uh, how this can be a, a job for someone. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really Im important consideration. You know, uh, sometimes when I was teaching on undergrads, we would talk about how, you know, healthcare workers are paid and, and some, and, and we would talk about this gender dynamic, right? And, and sometimes my 
my undergrads would say to me, well, you know, men deserve to make more, they would say things like this, it's just, just a picture into gender politics in the US, but they would say men deserve to make more because of the physical labor that they do. And, you know, I'm not, you know, the, certainly a, a lot of male dominated jobs are very physically demanding, uh, but I think we overlook the physical demands of a lot of healthcare jobs. And in fact, nursing assistants are more likely to experience um, uh, uh, occupational injuries um, and infection than any other occupation, especially during COVID, um, clearly. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that there are a lot of risks that come with healthcare work, um, certainly for direct care workers, but for nurses as well. Um, uh, occupational injury and infection are a real problem for RNs even as well. So yeah, healthcare is a really demanding demanding job. I think we, we overlook that, that part of it. And when we talk about mobility and being able to move up, um, how does a pay factor into who can do a, a certain job? Um, or who can who who needs to stay where they are yeah. uh, instead of moving up? So it's a question for everybody. If you'd like to chime in on this question, yeah. uh, but we can start with Dr. Helda. Well, um, I would like to talk in relationship to that question uh, about uh, two things. One uh, is the exodus of the healthcare uh, entry-level workers, because what happened with the pandemic is that the uh, entry-level salary for service occupations was raised because of pressure. And, uh, but that didn't happen in the uh, healthcare workforce. So we still have, um, a, for instance, uh, a, a home health aides, personal health aides with an entry level salary that was the same as two or three years ago. So what happened is that they are moving from the healthcare sector to other service sectors, restaurant, a hotel, etc. So, uh, in terms of the salary, definitely the salary has to be more competitive uh, and reflect the growing trends of the uh, labor force in general. Uh, second, I would like to also mention that in healthcare, we have a lot of, um, we have personnel who have been highly trained outside of the United States, but they came as in, they come as immigrants, and they take jobs that are in the healthcare field uh, that are entry level. Uh, much, many times we have um, doctors, MDs, registered nurses, etc., that may be working and medical as medical assistants. And I want to emphasize the value of the health entry level healthcare workers, home health aides, medical assistants, uh, uh, dental assistants, all of them are the basis and like the pillars under the under under which the healthcare system is structured so um they enter into uh, entry-level occupations with the hope that they can find a way to that career development to go back to perhaps to the original job that they had in their uh, in their uh, home countries with that said that means that what is a good job in healthcare Perhaps one that allows for that growth and that allows for the utilization of that knowledge into uh, entry-level professions and then allow for that uh, professional development while still uh, uh, re-establishing, revamping the entry-level. And uh, we can move on to another question unless you wanted to chime in on the question about mobility. Yeah. 
Well, I, I was just going to ask Martha about how she feels about her pay. Oh, she, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm one of the fortunate. I have a good retirement, but everybody else, I feel so bad for them. Oh, they deserve a lot more. And then this is job that you know you're not going to leave because you're taking care of your loved ones, so you're stuck. And that's not fair. We need to get those board of supervisors out of there. We need to fight hard. This, this is one thing that our union is fighting, and they're fighting hard. It's just a shame that we have to fight for what we want, and we deserve it. We work hard. A lot of us put in extra hours and not getting paid for them. That's what the, the providers do when they're taking care of somebody, and they know they need more hours. They only give them four hours a day or, or two hours a day, but they know they can't leave their patient there or their, their, the person they're taking care of, but, and they need help, so they put extra hours for them. And they can't, you cannot leave your, your loved ones and won't move on to another job. I mean, that's not human. But we deserve a lot more, and we're going to fight until we win. There's a lot that the union is doing. Right now. So. This is one of the best unions, because I was at the union at, at the post office, and they didn't even want me there, because I was one of the first women. But uh, yeah, they said if I wanted to get paid like a man, I was going to work like a man. And I told them, I pick grapes, that's nothing. But you know, we have no choice <laughs> what they pay us. But we can make a difference. We could fight. And on Tuesday, we're going to be at the Board of Supervisors. So we're going to be out there fighting. So when we think of what is a good job, and you're checking off your boxes on wh where you want to work, and um, one of the ideas is you get to take a break from your work. Um, we know Martha sometimes cannot take a break because it's a 24-7 job. But a question for Jeanette. Um, is respite care, this idea of respite care. So you can, and Dr. Held, if you want to chime in on this question too, this idea of you can leave your work at, at work and go home and take a break. Um, can everybody do that in healthcare? Well, go ahead, please. I would say, um, you know, w w one of the challenges that, uh, I, I think there's a couple things. I mean, one of the challenges is um, the home care environment, right? When you are caring for a family member, it can be very hard to get respite. Uh, and another um, theme that I have heard from healthcare workers that I have interviewed during and after the pandemic is that you know during the during the pandemic there was actually um, a pretty good supply of healthcare workers because. Um, if you remember, we kind of have to like go back in time a little bit, but if you remember, everything else was shut down, right? So like there weren't a lot of jobs in other sectors during that time because all the restaurants were closed and retail and all of that. And so a lot of people ended up working in healthcare because they just needed to have a job. And, and so there was actually a pretty good supply of healthcare workers. So Working during the pandemic was hard. This is what I heard from a lot of um, home care workers and, and people working in adult care homes and nursing homes. Working during the pandemic was hard, but really when it got really hard was after the pandemic sort of started to ease and the economy started booming, right? Like, like Helda talked about earlier, you know, all of a sudden there was this, all this competition from other industries like retail and food service and, and people started to leave. And then workloads became really intense in the healthcare sector and there was a lot of pressure to take on, um, you know, extra shifts and to 
um, stay late because, you, you know, like no one was coming in after. And when you were there, you were taking care of extra patients because you were short-staffed. And so, um, you know, I think that the issue of respite care um, is challenging, you know, especially for people giving care to their families. That is a um, you know, being able to find someone to provide replacement care is challenging. But I think right now in the healthcare sector, especially for direct care workers um, who are working in nursing homes and home health, um, there there's such a shortage of workers that um, that the demands, the workload demands, and sort of the staffing challenges are really intense. In, in terms of respite care and um, in relationship to what is a good care, a good job, uh, certainly um, they, uh, that's one issue that is constantly brought up by uh, home health workers and entry-level health workers is that um, they are expected to work whatever is needed because we are there with our hearts, right? So we, in, in all the professions, especially when there is a situation like we face of, the, of a pandemia, you, you kind of feel no, no right to say no, you have to say yes. And that happens with the health, home health workers is that they have no time to take care of themselves, their mental health needs. That's one priority issue in terms of jobs is uh, allowing for a mental health care, for health workers because we ourselves are also uh, dealing with health issues of various natures that require care. Um, also in an, another characteristic of a good uh, job in healthcare is the flexibility and here it comes uh, the uh, concept of telehealth and the digitalization of healthcare services. As we have more uh, telehealth options, uh, more possibilities for training, education to the entry-level health workers, particularly home health workers, training in, for instance, OSHA compliance, OSHA protections, uh, Occupational Safe and Healthy Act uh, administration, which provides uh, training to the home health workers to also take care of themselves, prevent back injury, for instance, uh, deal with mental health issues. I think that um, salary is an important component but uh, because in many ways we are with the heart, also the finding tasks that are rewarding and that are meaningful in our eyes as healthcare workers. And uh, when we uh, saw the closure of Madero Community Hospital just up north, um, that is pretty much an entire workforce um, who couldn't go to work the next day when the hospital closed. And so um, that clearly you know, probably sent signals to um, to people who wanted to go into healthcare, that it seems unstable. So um, Jeanette or Helda or Marta, whoever wants to answer this question, um, who should, what are the solutions and who should be taking care of the healthcare industry? Uh, when, especially when you see a hospital close or you see issues like, uh, you know, entry level jobs uh, not being adequate, who, uh, what are the solutions there and, uh, and who would you go to? I'll talk from the perspective of academia and uh, certainly uh, who should take care of the healthcare, uh, the functionality of the healthcare system that's a combined effort of communities, uh, organizations, uh, uh, consumers, uh, clients. Uh, and I will talk about the role of the academia and as uh, in universities uh, or a preparation educational institutions are to train diverse workforce. Uh, 
uh, uh, th that reflects not only the diversity from an ethnocultural perspective, which is very important, very much needed, because that uh, is a plus to have a workforce that resembles the population they serve, but also from the perspective of lifestyles, from the perspective of um, a, a, a cultural aspects, like for instance, uh, a, communities, specific communities, uh, in terms of lifestyles, in terms of, for instance, interpretation services in American Sign Language, in ethnocultural aspects, offer programs that are responding to the needs. I personally want to talk to you about the Community Health Workers Program uh, that uh, we uh, are trying to uh, promote, and I have seen it in several organizations in the Central Valley who offer uh, certificates for community health workers. And what uh, the university, our university, California State University, Fresno, and the Department of Public Health is doing is trying to offer a venue for that growth a, a path for community health workers to work, to go into um, the bachelor's degree and then progress into master's or whatever other levels, because that is part of what we would consider a salary. It's not money, but it's definitely investment uh, in education. So opening career pathways and dialogue between among organizations to create those pathways together. Jeanette, do you want to chime in on that question on, uh, you know, who should be involved in uh, making sure that healthcare is a good job to go into? Yeah, well, I would say uh, that payers have a, a big role in ensuring that the healthcare sector is operational and, and is valuing workers. Um, so I, I think, you know, when we, we think about um, hospital closures, a lot of that comes down to insurance, right? And um, how insurance is being paid out to uh, healthcare organizations. Um, so um, that includes Medicare payment policy, it includes Medicaid payment policy, and it includes private insurers. And I would say that all three of those are important in shaping job quality in the healthcare sector. They're really important in determining which healthcare organizations can stay open and thrive and which don't. Um, and, and I would say all of them um, place a lot of emphasis on really technical, fancy, expensive care, um, physician care. And I would say that preventive care, um, population-based care, uh, sort of the daily um, hands-on care is really undervalued by our pay payment system. Um, so, so to, you know, if we think about the way our Medicare and Medicaid dollars are being spent, where that money's going, uh, you know, it's not being spent on dry care workers. <laughs> it's not being spent on preventive care. It's not being spent on primary care. Um, and it's not being spent on community hospitals, right? Um, so I think a lot of it comes down to insurance companies um, and our Medicaid and Medicare dollars and, and how they're being distributed. Interesting. And, uh, and going to Marta for this question, uh, there's 20,000 people in um, the union that you're a part of. And uh, you've accomplished things like getting uh, your hours bumped up uh, or getting a higher salary yeah. uh, or getting paid more per hour. Um, uh, what else is needed? Uh, you, you know, know what I would workers. see a, a retirement mm -hmm. we accomplished a lot but we really need a retirement 
And thank God that they have a health insurance, but you have to have 80 hours. And they were trying to take that out to give us a raise, which we are not going to go for that. We need the health insurance. But that's, that's what I want to see. And I want to see vacation pay. Right now we have sick leave three, uh, three days a year. I want to see that. You know, but I, you know, I want to see that and get paid a lot more. Get, get paid a lot more. We do the job because we, there's a need to it. And if we would get more pay, we would have more uh, care providers, more in nursing home. Of course, we're also in charge of nursing home. They're shorthanded. If they would get paid well enough, we would, the, the clients would get better care. You know, and I, I want to add that I, uh, I'm a quantitative researcher. So I use large data sets and look at, you know, I use uh, big data sets that are collected by the U.S. Census Bureau to study employment in the U.S., and that's the kind of work I do. And I never paid attention to unions until I became a, a quantitative researcher and started looking at workers' wages. And if there's one thing that consistently provides higher wages for direct care workers, it's unions. Um, and it, it is consistently the m strongest predictor of higher wages for workers. So I think that um, worker, that unions are a really powerful lever for creating better jobs in the healthcare sector. And we're gonna uh, end there uh, for my questions, but we also wanna open it up to the audience for questions. Um, if any of you uh, have been listening and you're curious about something that you heard, uh, this is the time to ask uh, questions. And I think we're gonna have somebody um, come up here and. You can line up. Hi, everyone. Um, so we'll get started with our Q&A. Um, for anyone in our in-person audience who has any questions, please line to the right of the stage. Um, Ariana will assist you. And then I'm going to start off with an online question. All right. So to our panelists, um, can the panelists point, point to any places institutions or programs in California that have done a particularly good job of making work better for direct care providers? Uh, I appreciate very much the question and appreciate very much your presence in this event. Uh, certainly, we see, we place our students in so many organizations that welcome them, teach them the reality, and without their participation, our students could not get the experience that is necessary. Uh, so definitely organizations such as the West uh, uh, Fresno Family Resource Center, Centro La Familia, Centro um, uh, Oaxaqueño Binacional, Para el Desarrollo Oaxaqueño Binacional, please excuse me if that's not exactly the title, but uh, the center, that center is serving the um, uh, indigenous native uh, community communities that are coming from Mexico uh, in the Central Valley and who are essential in uh, the um, far working uh, population as well as in the healthcare field as well, um, also because they also train and provide interpretation services in languages that we don't have many people trained for, Mixteco, Zapoteco, Triqui. Um, organizations, hospitals, uh, and the hospitals of the Central Valley, I think they do a very good job. They uh, 
do the best they can in terms of uh, hiring people who who resemble the diverse or uh, the diversity of the uh, Central Valley. And um, it, I, I think I could name lots of them, but just a few. Right, so our first audience. Hello, I'm Lourdes Oliva. Thank you for such a wonderful conversation and very good speakers. So my question is, since you were referring to qualitative data, census data, I think the issue of immigration, I work with SIREN and we service immigrants' rights. And if the data is showing the growing population of immigrants who are not able to leave or have family here because of the lack of immigration reform, you know, how are we gonna start preparing for that? Because, I mean, the baby boomers needed us, we were there, now we need who's gonna take care of us. So I think that how are you calculating or uh, predicting putting this information into your work? Because I think Madeira is a good example of why that hospital went under, because we didn't see the data and the importance of the immigrant community that was there and how they had the lack of access to um, insurance, mm -hmm. to education, to preventative knowledge, mm -hmm. and also of practice of using healthcare. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's true. Is there any response to that, to her comments? Yeah, so, um, and, and tell me if I'm not, I'm not answering this correctly, but it sounds to me like your question is, how do we care for the immigrants that are providing care for baby boomers and for people who live in this country? Uh, and, and I think that that is such an important question. Uh, I, I think that, like I said, uh, a lot of direct care work especially is really overlooked because it is being provided by immigrant women and other marginalized populations that we are not paying attention to. Uh, and so I, I do think that um, if we're going to talk about good jobs in healthcare, we have to think about, you know, the whole healthcare workforce, including all of the people sort of who are n not being seen. Um, you know, I think that um, uh, as we've talked about, I think there are some levers for creating better jobs in sort of the lowest levels of the healthcare sector. I think unions are a really important part of that. Um, and I, I also think that, um, you know, some, some labor policies around minimum wage, paid leave, um, you know, health insurance, things like that can make a huge difference for immigrant populations. Um, I do also think that, um, as Helda talked about earlier, I, I think that providing pathways um, for upward mobility within the healthcare sector can be really powerful. Uh, if we think about the difference between a nursing assistant, what a nursing assistant makes, and what an RN makes, mm -hmm. it's an enormous difference, right? A nursing assistant is poverty level wages, and an RN is middle class, right, um, in the US. And so, you know, helping people to make that transition through the healthcare sector can be one really powerful way that we can promote. Um, social justice and racial justice in the in the U.S. Well, I I definitely think that here is where we see the role of uh, legislation policy. 
uh, that is supportive of a uh, diverse uh, health uh, uh, workforce and that uh, certainly uh, revamps the debate about immigration, uh, revamps the debate about um, training people who are already in the United States in health service uh, uh, occupations and allowing them to um, perhaps uh, get a, a, a documentation status that will allow them to get into those professions uh, in a full capacity. Uh, and also the role of the university's academia. And um, I don't know, I have this vision of, for instance, making sure that the and we do have programs, uh, health uh, clinics, and various uh, universities here in the Central Valley because there are many uh, who have uh, programs with um, healthcare organizations in which they are going and train those health workers, uh, community health workers. And when we talk about community health workers, uh, we talk about health navigators, health coaches, um, community outreach workers, recovery specialists, family support workers, and now we are. Uh, a new category is mental health uh, care workers. Very important. So, allowing uh, workers in the home health uh, in the home health field, for instance, to um, have programs, educational programs that are going to uh, train them in the first place for a be for better care delivery, but also to allow them for that growth. I, I will add on the immigration issue that. Um, you know, I think a lot of countries rely on immigration um, to support their their healthcare services. Um, so, you know, specifically providing visas to bring people in to provide uh, direct care work. Uh, uh, our neighbors to the north um, in Canada that does a lot more of that. Um, we we in the U.S. don't have we don't generally have that approach, um, but it's one that I see talked about more and more. Um, just because of our sort of supply issues. So, um, you know, I think that um, that is a conversation that we will continue to have with our aging population. That reminds me of in nursing, specifically for registered nurses. There are programs where they bring registered nurses from outside of the United States, from Philippines, for instance, and there are whole programs established to train uh, those nurses uh, to pass the NCLEX, which is required for them to uh, practice in the United States. Uh, they even have programs that are um, linguistic programs to uh, develop the medical terminology because we know it in our own original languages but may not know it in English. So develop the medical terminology knowledge that is needed um, or uh, also understand the culture and the healthcare system that is certainly complex uh, in our eyes when you come from outside of the United States. Uh, we feel our, our home countries have very complex systems. When we come here, it's even harder to, <laughs> to understand. That. So all those components are, are feasible, not only for registered nurses, but they should be extended to uh, other professions. And starting for the ones that are here already, I yeah. think they are here. Pro, uh, uh, promote them, give them the possibilities to achieve that full potential that they have already by experience. Awesome, thank you. So we have um, time for one more question and this is an online question. 
So the American health system is famously expensive and not that good at outcomes compared to other countries. Can these entry and care jobs really be better with an existing system, or do we need a new system? <laughs> Just a tiny question. <laughs> One minute. Uh, well, they, um, there are several legislative initiatives to modify the healthcare system in the United States. Um, I think the key point is to make a healthcare system that is more of health promotion, primary care, disease prevention, that will ultimately reduce cost in secondary and tertiary care. Um, also, um, definitely entry-level healthcare workers are trained to do that. That's why, yes, definitely they are a response uh, to, if not modify the healthcare system, because it may not be completely feasible to change everything uh, in uh, time-wise or in a moment, is certainly to strengthen the aspects of a healthcare system that are going to be have the best cost-benefit, cost-utility results um, from an economic perspective, from a human perspective, that are going to really help people and that are going to increase the uh, health status, the wellness of our communities, wellness from the physical, mental, um, social, spiritual, intellectual domains of wellness. Thank you so much, Helda, for that response. Um, I know we can go on and discuss this topic forever, but uh, it's time for us to close. And uh, really want to thank uh, all of you for this conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been an honor to speak with each of you. Um, and thank you to everyone in the audience for coming and listening. Uh, you will be able to find uh, a summary of this talk at zocalopublicsquare.org uh, by tomorrow, uh, plus interviews with, um, with the panelists. Uh, and you can also subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter, podcast, and social media if you want to keep following. Uh, at, as Joe mentioned at the beginning, this program is a part of Zocalo's series, uh, What is a Good Job Now?, which is supported by the James Irvine Foundation. And I hope that you all join us again in the future for uh, as the series continues. Uh, so Jeanette, Hilda, and Martha, thank you again for the conversation. And uh, please give our guests a round of applause.